Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, this is Virginia. Events over recent years have highlighted racial inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. Here at Broad Talk, we recognise that the path towards true reconciliation is the responsibility of all of us, all the time. In that spirit, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we record this podcast, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. The system is broken. I don't get the rules at all. How far? Can we work within a system that we need to get rid of? I think men feel somehow women's liberation is a threat to their manhood. And it is. Tragically, I couldn't give a shit whether you think I have a right to speak up about anything or not. People who make revolutions get burnt. We started it here! No. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Broad Talk, the Changemakers series. I'm Virginia Hausiger and it's terrific to have your company for this very special series that we're bringing you in partnership with MOAD, the Museum of Australian Democracy, housed in Canberra's old Parliament House, where I've had the Really wonderful honour of guest curating a new exhibition on Australian women changemakers. Now, for those of you who have been listening to this series, and thank you for that, and thank you for your wonderful feedback. It's always terrific to hear from you. Um, you will know that we are speaking with some of Australia's fascinating, intriguing, and great changemakers in this series and sort of prod and push around what has motivated them why they do what they do, how they've done it, and what is the cost of being a changemaker. Please do get in touch and keep the conversation going. You can always get me on hello at broadtalk.net. You can find us on Insta. You can find me on Twitter. And, of course, our Facebook page, Broad Talk. Or join the Broad Talk group, the Broad Talk Roundtable. Now, today's guest is someone I have been busting to speak to for such a long time in this series. There's no single or one way to introduce Dr. Anne Summers AO. To say that she's an Australian writer and feminist icon, or as some have said, the godmother of Australian feminism, is pithy, but it's not enough. Her phenomenal career is unprecedented and remains unparalleled. 
Just briefly, Anne shot to fame back in 1975 with the release of her book, a now treasured Australian classic, Damned Halls and God's Police. There have been many, many books since then, including The End of Equality, The Misogyny Factor, and of course, her autobiography, and my, one of my favourite autobiographies, Unfettered and Alive. She's been a press gallery bureau chief for the Financial Review. She's been editor of Ms. Magazine in the US. Back here in Australia, she was a famous Femocrat. Uh, back in the 80s, she headed up the Office for the Status of Women, was advisor to Prime Ministers, was editor of Good Weekend magazine and just just adding to all of that, a great environmentalist, was also chair of Greenpeace International. There are many, many other things that Anne has done. But most recently, literally weeks ago, she's also released another piece of ground groundbreaking research on women and violence called The Choice, Violence or Poverty. And that breaks open a whole new national discussion around the connections between single mothers, violence and poverty. And we will touch on that. But gosh, Anne, welcome to Broad Talk and the Changemaker series. Thank you so much for being part of our exhibition and part of this series. Thanks, Virginia. It's uh, really good to be talking with you. I want to jump straight into the exhibition itself. And for those of you who haven't seen it, don't worry, it's open for a couple of years here in, in Canberra at Museum of Old Parliament House. And it's a little exhibition, but big in spirit. Now, in the centre of the room are objects of seven great Australian change makers, and of course, being one of those. And we asked each of them to give us the loan of an object that meant a lot to them and that, that told part of their story. And, and you chose one of my f- favourite objects, a old typewriter. Tell us, and, and it's an amazing piece of equipment because it's it's got all the stickers and badges on it from all around the places you've travelled and lots of, um, you know, airline flight tickets on it and all that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a really, probably the most travelled typewriter I've ever seen in my life. In fact, it is. Why did you choose that? Well, that typewriter is the one that I used when I was a journalist at the Financial Review, uh, Bureau Chief, as you mentioned, um, I started in 1979. I did that job for about four years. And uh, during in the, part of the job was to travel with the Prime Minister, so I did a lot of overseas trips uh, with the Prime Minister, who was then Malcolm Fraser. I also did a few trips of my own because my editor, Max Walsh, was very keen on the idea of his political writers getting out into the world and experiencing other political systems. So he sent me on a three-week tri- trip of, to Southern Africa uh, prior to a chogun, which is being held in Zambia. And he also sent me to Pakistan following a chogun regional meeting held in Delhi. And so I accumulated a lot of, a lot of travel stickers and, 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 and they stayed on the case. They're still there. And, and uh, I've just, I've also got another typewriter, which is a much, much older. And even though I don't, God, I couldn't tell you how many computers I've had since. <laughs> yeah, but, same. Um, but I just decided to hang on to these two typewriters. And I've had, I used to have a gorgeous little yellow one. I don't know what happened to that one. And I've had many, I had a wonderful electronic typewriter, which is, you know, the, the absolute bee's knees back in the 80s. And I, when I went to live in America back in the late 70s, I donated that uh, typewriter to the well office in Canberra uh, because they didn't have any decent office equipment. And this was a really uh, Schmidt typewriter and it was enabled then to put out better looking press releases. When I was asked to come up with an object that 
not necessarily summarise my career, but with, which uh, was kind of emblematic of it. I mean, I have always been a writer. Whatever else I've done, I've always been a writer. I always think of myself as a writer and a journalist rather than, you know, I've been doing academic work for the past few years, but I don't think of myself as an academic. I think of myself as a writer and a researcher because journalists um, well, used to be researchers. They don't have much time these days to do the mm. That we were able to do when I was in the Canberra Press Gallery, so it's something that's um, meaningful to me as a tool of trade. It also represents the past. It's 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 a it's a it's a, um, a form of technology which has been overtaken. <laughs> Very, very overtaken, I've got to say. Can I just tell you, Anne, on the night that we launched the exhibition, there were some young women there and I found myself trying to explain to them how that typewriter worked because they were just, I mean, when I say young women, they were schoolgirls, and they were just kind of flabbergasted as to, you know, how you work it, how to, you know, what's it for? Um, and I, you know, I was just thought it's extraordinary. That, did you get around um, to explaining whiteouts and colours? Yeah, I did, I did. Yeah, I used to use one too. Um, yeah, and it, it, it just made me feel very ancient. Look, but just moving on from there, you mentioned Max Such and from the Financial Review. Max Walsh. Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon, Max Walsh. When you were made Bureau Chief of the Financial Review, you are pretty new to journalism and didn't really think that you were qualified for the job. What made you push on and do it, though? Well, I'd, I'd actually been in journalism for, for a whole four years, uh, so you know, relatively new. But what, what was, what was um, remarkable about the offer from Max Walsh was that uh, I had worked for four years at the National Times, which was for Max Such, who you mentioned. And the National Times was a terrific, uh, for those people who remember it, you know, terrific magazine-style newspaper that, that pioneered investigative reporting and a lot of very innovative storytelling of the kind that, is, that we didn't have in the country until then. So I'd been working there for four years. Um, but what I hadn't done, I'd never worked in daily, daily journalism because the National Times was a weekly. I'd never worked in Canberra. And, and this job, uh, working as a political co- correspondent initially for Financial Review, uh, and I'd never written about politics. So, you know, there were three things that were huge challenges, and I think Max Walsh chose me for that job because he recognised some elements of, of himself. He'd been a police groundsman. Did you doubt your ability to do it initially? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I was terrified, and I... He actually offered me the job when I was in America on a journalist um, fellowship, a six-month fellowship, and I was based in the Midwest in um, St. Paul, uh, Minneapolis, and um, uh, Minnesota, I should say, and he, he called me and offered me the job and, and I found, you know, I've always thought if someone wants you to do a job and they can think you can do it, you should take it. And, in fact, almost every job I've had in my life has never been my idea. It's always been somebody else's idea. And I think, oh, well, okay, if they think I can do it, Maybe, maybe I can. And so I said yes, but, I mean, I was in the Midwest. And I hadn't seen a copy of the Financial Review in several months. There's no way of getting one there. There's no internet or uh, anything mm. like that. I, I made a trip to New York at some point and went into the Fairfax office and, and looked at the, co- at the at a copy of the Fin Review and just about fainted. <laughs> but before, you know, there were stories about, you know, law of the sea policy and tapping treasury bonds and all kinds of things. And I thought, I'd never even heard of, let alone knew anything about. So I got very, very apprehensive. Uh, but I kind of stuck to the the view that if Max Walsh thought I could do it, 
I, I would have to find a way to do it. And, and you know, it, I, I had a few stumbles at the beginning, very bad ones, but um, the good thing about daily journalism back then it picked particularly is that, you know, yesterday's paper's old news, nobody cares, you move on. Your mistakes don't live don't on. Bit different now. Um, and you say that, uh, you know, people offered you jobs and you you take it and do it, but you've also been very, very independent in your career. Um, you've, you've, done, you've, you've pushed out on your own a number of times, and I'm thinking of the Ann Summers Report and uh, Ann Summers in Conversation, the various projects, big projects, and even the one you've just done that you, you, you've instigated yourself and pushed out on your own and in that sense your your career is extraordinary because you just keep going and I'm wondering we'll talk about some of those particular things you've done but I'm just wondering in brief how do you sustain yourself and and keep jumping from thing to thing to thing I mean you're in your 70s now and you know yes you've had some failures and you've had some amazing successes but you just keep pushing on a lot of activists burn out you, you just don't ever seem to. So how do, what sustains you? Uh, I, don't, I don't really think I can answer that question, Virginia, because I, I don't know. <laughs> I, just, I have an idea um, and I, pro- I probably have slowed down a bit, a little bit, not, not much actually. I don't think so, Anne. I don't no, think so. I, I had a big meeting this morning with some people who, who should remain nameless about uh, my next, they, said they wanted to know what my next project was and I, I outlined the 10 things that I intend to be doing over the next year. <laughs> So I, I, I am a bit slower than I used to be, which I hate, and that's all to do with being um, older and, and you know, having crooked knees and all those sorts of things that happen to you when you get into your 70s. Um, and I really, you know, hate that and I resent it, but try not to let it stop me from doing things. But I've, for, I've, I've been fortunate most of my life to have had good health and incredible energy. I mean, I really... Mm. I know people say to me, they don't know where I get the energy from. Well, I don't either, but um, I'm glad I have it because it, 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 it's not just physical energy, it's it's intellectual and emotional energy and a tremendous curiosity. And one of the things about not sort of being attached to institutions for very long is that you can see things that people don't see if, if they're, you know, in those institutions. And I think one reason why I... I you know, I, mean, I guess Dan Tools and God's Police was my initial offering of seeing the world differently, uh, seeing Australia differently, and because I felt we had to have a, a way of understanding our culture. We couldn't just rely on all the American and British feminists, fabulous as their books were, but we needed a story about our own particular brands of sexism and misogyny and male chauvinism, as we used to call it, and that's why I did that book. And I've, I feel the same with the most recent project, the, the report on, on violence, is that you know, we've been re- sort of rehearsing the same stats for 12 years now or however long it is, and they sound terrible, but they're actually understating the issue, they're understating the problem. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of, well, there hasn't been any new thinking in, in domestic violence in this country, in my opinion, and so I decided it had to be done. I just want to wind back a little bit, though, you, you, Going back to the early days of Damned Halls in the 70s, and I must admit, I've just read a book um, where you're quoted throughout a book on feminism, The Making of a Child Rights Revolution by Isabel Barrett Myring. And the the reference, the constant references to women's liberation, the activism, the discussions, the collective work, the theorising, the 
the campaigning uh, is extraordinary. And, and as I say, your work is mentioned uh, frequently. And it was a reminder to me, not that I was there, I was a, you know, a toddler or kid at the time, but those that period in Australia for women was very, very active and very policy-driven focused or, or perhaps, yeah, well, policy reform focused, I should say. I, I'm interested in your reflection on that period now uh, and because you were right at the forefront of it, in terms of what has been achieved? Well, I mean, we've just spent about a week. Mm, I know, <laughs> I know. It's a, it's a ridiculously um, I mean, hard the, question. The question, the answer is we've achieved a lot and, and, you know, and we've achieved very little. I mean, both things are true. I mean, when you look back to the 1970s, which I have to admit is my favourite decade, I think we did more then and we were more hopeful then and we... We didn't believe in failure. We didn't believe that things could ever be reversed. I mean, the big shock to me was in the 90s when things started to go backwards, and I wrote about that in the end of Equality, and I I just was flabbergasted because I thought once we'd won a reform that we'd have it forever, and and that turned out not to be the case, and that's even more so the case in in, in the early 21st century, uh, though I hope that might be stalled now with a new government in Canberra that is actually interested in governing and is interested in social justice and, and says no one should be left behind. And we haven't heard that kind of language in our politics for a very mm, long time. For a long time. But, I mean, if you think back to the 70s when, you know, the first job I applied for, um, one of the first jobs I applied for was at the ABC, uh, to be a specialist trainee, and they used to publish the pay, pay rates in the, in the job advertisements then. And the rate of pay for a female graduate, as I was about to become, uh, was lower than that for a, a, a boy who only had high school education. So that, 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 that has changed. When I went for the interview, the first question I was asked was about football. I think that's changed. Um, <laughs> I remember going to the races once at, at Randwick in Sydney and um, um, a man in a green uniform came up to me and says, Madam, you can't stay, you can't be here. This is the, the betting ring. You know, this is only for men. So, you know, just little things like that. Mm. The, the, the nightly news, the weather would be read by a girl in a bikini. There's just lots I of mean, it, it's, it's mind-boggling to think. But the, the architecture has changed. The legislative architecture has changed. I'm not – but – you know the issue of attitudes and beliefs, you know, and behaviours we're still grappling with. But I'm interested, though, in your reflection. You say the 70s is your favourite decade, and it was a very, very active time for the, the liberation movement, as I said, and, and feminism. But you also have been quite critical at times of feminist collective action. In fact, at one stage even referred to it um, when you were being critical about some of the failure in the United States to move things on, particularly the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. You talked about the collective action being fuzzy thinking and that feminists were in fact uh, at at that time or a particular time too uh, obsessed with fame and factionalism and fuzzy thinking. Did you grow out of that sort of methodology of, of, of action? I mean, those criticisms are directed at American feminists, not Australian feminists. I mean, American feminists, you know, the, the, the failure to, to, to prevent Roe v. Wade disappearing is, is on them. I mean, we've known for 50 years that Republicans are going to do it. Why haven't they stopped it? You know, the, the most recent head of Planned Parenthood, which is the main organisation in the United States de- defending women's health, uh, and, and particularly abortion, you know, she she recently 
which was well, she she lost her job over it, thank goodness. But she she said that Planned Parenthood shouldn't be a political organisation. They shouldn't be advocating uh, for to retain abortion, for example. Well, I mean that is just an example of of, of stupidity, in my opinion. But also, it is and it costs lots of women's lives. We had a period when Obama, President Obama, controlled the House, the Senate, and the White House. Now, why didn't he codify Roe v. Wade back then? He could have done it. I remember being invited when I was the editor-in-chief of Ms. Magazine, you know, going to, to an, an abortion march in, in Washington and being invited to join the celebrities in the celebrity tent. And, to, and I was given a special sash. I was a celebrity and I got to march in the front line. And I just thought that was, you know, that, that approach, uh, caring more about celebrity and having movies, making sure Jane Fonda was there and, you know, various movie stars were there, was more important than having good policy. And that is still, I mean, I, I still get the emails from the Women's March in, in, in uh, the United States, even though, of course, I'm no longer there. Uh, but I, I remember getting the emails just before one of the most recent marches before I left, and the instructions that were given were um, nothing about policy. It was, one, don't wear perfume. Huh? Secondly, do not carry any uh, signs about um, coat hangers because it might upset people. Oh, good. And, you know, thirdly, you know, this and fourthly that. So it was all a list of things that you shouldn't do at the march. There was nothing about, you know, having a political approach to what we do to save Roe v. Wade. So we're wasting our time worrying about perfuming hope hangers. And meanwhile, the Supreme Court is being stacked and we now, now know what has happened. So is this a feminist failure? And it's an American failure. It's not a failure of, of, I mean, we haven't had that kind of behaviour in, in this country. I don't, I don't know much about British uh, feminism, but as far as I can see, we haven't. But, I mean, this country, I mean, we have a lot of disagreements and, and so on, but this country has been far more politically focused, has been far more willing to work within government. I think that Australian feminism is very smart and uh, we understand uh, the issues we understand what needs to change doesn't even say we don't have disagreements and I, I disagree with certain people and a lot of people hate me and all the rest of it but but you know we have achieved a lot more in policy terms think childcare in particular than the the Americans think childcare think government shouldn't be involved in childcare mm. and the first time I heard that when I was editing Ms I practically fell out of my chair and said why not. Mm. Mm. And they said, well, you wouldn't want the people who can't deliver the mail being in charge of childcare, would you? That's an American attitude to government. We could talk about this for ages and hours. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to just pick up on, um, you mentioned failure. Let's talk about failures and personal failures as well. But I think this is really, really important for change makers. We'll be back in just a moment. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome back. And we touched on the issue of failure. Now, I don't want to be negative here, but I think it's really important for you to share this um, as a, a change maker with, as I've said at the beginning, of an unparalleled career. And I've got to say, I think one of the most stunning careers in Australian history, and I'm in awe of what you've done. Well, it's true. It's true. I'm just utterly in awe of what you've done. But you have had a number of failures. You've had some really shitty, difficult times. Ms. Magazine, for example, you when you were editing that and uh, with your colleague Sandra Yates took over Ms. Magazine, you ended up embroiled in disharmony, for want of a stronger word, with Gloria Steinem. Um, that didn't go well. Uh, Susan Faludi, when she wrote her book in, in 91 on backlash, suggested that you had actually sold out Ms. Magazine. You commercialised it too much. Um, you know, you've, you've had some really, really difficult times. Mind you, I'm, I'll just say on Ms. Magazine, of course, you then went to Wall Street and you and, and Sandra raised $20 million to keep that magazine going. But how do you deal with that kind of failure? How do you not let it just crush you? Um, well, it wasn't easy, I have to tell you. It was one of the worst times in my life. And, um, I mean, it went on for a couple of years. It wasn't just the antagonism, not the antagonism of Gloria Steinem, it was the hypocrisy. Uh, I mean, Sandra and I saved Miss Magazine and it's still going now. I mean, it's had lots of owners since, but it's still got, it's, but it's still owned by the women's movement, it's still a feminist magazine. We weren't so lucky with Sassy, uh, the other magazine we had, which, which has, has since closed. Um, but I mean, I was incredibly angry at, at, at when that Susan Faludi book came out. I honestly couldn't believe it. it was, I mean, somebody who's won a Pulitzer Prize for journalism cannot tell the basic truth about uh, certain things was just gobsmacking. Um, so you know, I actually got a lawyer lawyer to write uh, to her publisher. So you know, she I just think that she's a shockingly bad journalist. But cope the, I mean, the worst part of it was when. You know, we'd raised the $20 million on Wall Street. We'd bought the magazines. Um, we were doing unbelievably well. Sassy was launched. It was the most successful magazine launch in America since L. You know, we, we'd had, you know, $25 million worth of advertising bookings. And then suddenly, you know, out of nowhere, there was this boycott launched against us, mm. against Sassy, by these religious women from the Midwest. And so suddenly, you know, we, we lost, in one single day, we lost $25 million worth of advertising bookings. And we were unable to meet our first uh, uh, debt repayment um, payments, so uh, so we were, you know, sort of on the back foot. From the- can I can I just ask you? I'll just jump in there because I know it, it's an amazing story, and it's detailed really beautifully in your autobiography, Unfettered and Alive. But how do you not? Take it personally when it. I understand there are a whole lot of political forces there and commercial forces, but how do you not take it personally and think I I, I should have done it differently and that wouldn't have happened or we we could have I could have ridden over that. Um, in the end, you have to walk away. Well, I mean the things that think it's happening. I mean I think all of the, the hard feelings come later. Though there was a period when it was really really hard and you know we didn't have the money to pay salaries and stuff like that. I used to go home every night and um, drink a glass of scotch and cry. And I've never done that before or since. 
I'm not saying I've never cried, but I would never, you know, I, I, I will never cry in the office, for, never, uh, but you know, going home and, and doing that. So, I mean, I was incredibly stressed. It was horrible. It was a horrible, horrible, horrible time in my life. And I felt, you know, the injustice of it was really unfair and it, 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 was, it was terrible. It was not, there's no two ways about it. How do you roll on though? Because you did. You you, you just you, you, well eventually came back to Australia and you rolled on and you you continued with uh, terrific jobs and I don't know if I got the timing of this right, but you did go on to work in government as a femocrat and did some very important um, policy reform work. Yeah. Uh, well, that was before. Sort of that was before. beforehand. I mean, yeah. After me, I had um, I had a contract, so they had to keep me on their books. The new owners of Miz kept me on their books for a couple of years, so I was getting paid but not getting much work. And that was, you know, I tried to make it as a magazine writer and and didn't have any success with that. So I was, I was you know, in a, in a frustrating situation, but I, at least I wasn't starving. But then I get the call from Paul Keating's office saying, you know, would I like to come back and help them out? So I did that and that was, you know, that was a big circuit breaker and a great opportunity to come back uh, do do what I could to help uh, Keating uh, get the women's vote. You know, he won the election, as you recall, and uh, I then, you know, we had a big decision to make, my husband and I, because Clinton had just been elected in the, in the state, so he wanted to be there for that. And Keating had just been re-elected in Australia, and I wanted to be him. Uh, in the end, we ended up staying here uh, for a while. But So that was an example, of, again, of a job I would never have applied for, but, you know, somebody rang up and suggested I could do mm. it. Fantastic. But then other things that you have completely initiated yourself, the Anne Summers Report, for example, and for those who don't know it, it, it was an excellent, outstandingly good read, a report that came out regularly, I think it was, well, every month. And Okay. Well, look, I, I loved it. Um, it was it, it, it was good intellectual thinking. It stirred really good discussion and you – Perhaps made the mistake of paying contributors, um, and and ultimately financially you couldn't make it work. You had also set up the Anne Summers conversation. We recall um, po- Julia Gillard post leaving as Prime Minister, her very first interview, which everyone was hanging out for. She did with you at the Opera House. Wow. There were thousands, and I think it was booked out ten thousand people in a matter of uh, half an hour or something. Um, so you did all these amazing things, but then even that ultimately became not viable for commercial reasons. How do you roll back from that or, or, or roll on from that, I should say? Well, you know, what choice do you have? <laughs> I, was, I was very, very um, disappointed and I, about that and I did did think about, well, what could I have done differently? I think the problem was that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a writer, I'm an ideas person, I'm not really much of a business person in the sense that um, probably if I'd had a business manager Maybe we could have made things work. Though probably not. Can, can I just say, hang on, but let's not forget, you did raise $20 million on Wall Street and you and Sandra were only the first, sorry, the second okay. women, all yeah. women yeah. Um, fundraiser to do that in the United States history. I and think Sandra to was doing more credit for that than me. She was one, it was her idea. <laughs> I would never have thought to do Well, it takes two, it takes two. Uh, but we did, um, you know, what, what, what Sandra says, uh, people 
you know, people who look like they need money can never get it. If you look like you don't need it, then you can raise it. So we both went and bought extremely expensive suits. You wore a very, very strong red power yes. suit. I've seen yes. the photo and yes. it was yes. a real cracker yeah, of a red. I, yeah. no, I paid more for that suit than I've ever paid for an outfit in my life. I was couldn't believe I spent that much money. <laughs> And uh, I think Sandra said to me, well, you know, we're either going to get this money or we're going to be the best dressed bag ladies in New York. And we've got the money. Actually, question, I mean, it's, it's um, you know, it's hard. It's very hard to, to, to roll back from that. But, I mean, I guess what happened in, in, in a way it was fortunate that the magazines closed down in 2016 and the very next year, uh, my husband received a great job opportunity to go to New York, so we we moved back to New York. And you know, although I didn't work there uh, in, in in America, I um, I did other things. I mean, I did I did a very big piece of writing about the pandemic, which was you know self published, but you know a lot of people read that. And I, then I started. I got, I was very fortunate enough to, to to be introduced to the Paul Ramsey Foundation and to. Uh, start talking to them about domestic violence, which wasn't on their radar then, but I, they asked me to write a report arguing why domestic violence should be of concern to them. And as a result, their board adopted uh, it as a priority. And then they um, appointed me as a fellow, their inaugural fellow, and funded me to write the report that's just been published. So all that work on domestic violence that I've been doing, I did from New York, because I've only been back six months. Um, and that was it was remarkable that I could do it all remotely and thank goodness for all the new technologies that the, the, the lockdown and the pandemic have um, have enabled. Uh, but that sort of got me back on my feet. Uh, I was really pleased to be doing new and original work, being financially supported to do something that I really believed in very strongly. And, um, you know, and, and, and I'm going to continue doing that. I mean, that, that is my new um, or my ongoing role. You, you're pattern of work though has been extraordinary you know it's had its ups and downs and its roller coaster but as I've, I've been saying throughout you know you've been very independent in in your choices and what you've done you follow the experience rather than the position or the power and in fact you've knocked back some amazing things I know Paul Keating at one stage offered you the uh, uh um, what was it American Co- in New York. yes in, in New York I mean what a great job and you said no well, um, yeah, no. <laughs> well I would have paid well but but you know and quite frankly yeah, you've always taken very nice apartment came with it too. Yeah, and you've taken you've taken the options that have really meant you've had a lot of financial stress too. No regrets? Um, oh yes, I have a few. Uh, I've, I've made some very stupid decisions. I bought an apartment a few years ago, and I thought was going to be my retirement, but bought it at a very bad time, and uh, it hasn't worked out. So you know, having a horrendously big mortgage at my age is no fun. I can tell you. So there's things like that that I, I regret, but but you know I've had, I've also been very fortunate. I mean I've had a lot of sadness in my life. I've had you know deaths. My youngest brother died very young of cancer. Older brother died um, more recently. He was older, but it was still a shock death in an accident. You know we've had we've had a lot of of sadness, but I've also been very very lucky. You know I've had had tremendous opportunities uh, that that other people you know could could. But equally, have, have got and, and I've I've been lucky enough to, to get them, and uh, I I feel I feel overall I feel fortunate to still be working at my age is also <laughs> something that's a bit of an accomplishment because you know, older women uh, do have, have a lot of trouble getting employment. There's there is discrimination against uh, older women, and that starts a lot younger than I am. 
I hope, you know, my example might, might help change that. I mean, I think we, we should be working as long as we can and want to, and, and it's, it's what we have to contribute with our, our brains and our whatever skills we have that should determine our employment, not, not our aid. That's, I mean, there used to be these arbitrary rules, for example, that you had to be um, over a certain height in order to be a police officer. And that prevented a lot of men and a lot of women from becoming police officers because they were, weren't, high, weren't tall enough. Now, once you change that law, you know, suddenly you've got a lot, a lot of short coppers, mm. you've got a lot, more, a lot more diversity in the police force. Mm. I think with the fire brigade. So there's lots of rules that we've got rid of over the years that had no, no basis to them. They were just, mm. you know, the way we've always done it. And ageism is, uh, look, this is obviously a growing issue in an ageing population, but it's something mm. that it, it's sort of coming to sort of stark spotlight, um, I think, of recent times. Uh, it's quite extraordinary, particularly in the media industry, interestingly. We're going to, we're not, we haven't got much more time, but I do want to ask you, and why did you call your your most recent um, autobiography, which was your, your second memoir, why did you call it Unfettered and Alive? Well, the reason I did that is because Michelle Obama stole my title. <laughs> right. Which was <laughs> well, well, and I'm just I'm just turning well, around to look at my looking what it is now, but that was the title of becoming. my Becoming. Was it Becoming? Becoming, Becoming. That was the title of my of my book. And um, the publisher wasn't, you know, it's not a very interesting title. I said, I, it, it, it describes me because I'm always becoming something else. I'm always doing something different. And for me, it was perfect. And then suddenly, you know, it's on the news. Michelle Obama has just been given, you know, $10 million or something to, to write an autobiography and it's going to be called Becoming. So I said to my publisher, well, we're not such a stupid title after all, huh? <laughs> um, but then I was left with the problem of coming up with a new mm. title and it was, it was really very hard. But what does it mean to you, Unfettered and Alive? What it means, well, what it says, I mean, it's from the Joni Mitchell song, obviously, and, and you know, I've been criticised because it refers to a man, not a woman. But and that's, you know, it's, it's a concept. It's, you know, you feel, you feel free of unlucky, you know, I'm, I'm not fettered by illness or responsibilities that a lot of people have. So I've got more um, ability to do things than some other people do have. And, and I do feel alive, alive in the sense that I'm not just physically still here, but that I, I'm doing things. I'm alive to ideas and opportunities and I, I do think about things differently and I do try to persuade people that, you know, change is good, change is not something to be scared about, being alive is wonderful and uh, we should be creative about it, you know, not just always do the same thing. You know, try different foods, try different mm. music, try, you know, go, go to a place you've never been before. Mm. Um, it's a kind of almost a banal concept, but it's one that a lot of people don't have the courage to, to, to do. They just feel that their lives are contra- con- constrained by people's expectations or by what their parents did or by mm. where they live or, you know, a whole lot of things. And my argument would be, well, you know, you live wherever you wherever you are living, whether it's by choice or not. You have to get the most out of it. You know, even mm-hmm. if you're in an unfair situation, you've got to try and get the most out of it. And just to finish up, looking forward, I, I know in 
in the past you have been ahead of the the curve or ahead of the discussion in warning of potential backlash in gender equity, gender equality, uh, a number of times you've been ahead of the game talking about what to look out for. Um, and I know I, I was just rereading your your updated version of Damned Halls the other night uh, where you have – 1994 this came out and, and a new intro where you talk then about uh, the need to be vigilant about – New issues, and and you actually refer to you know our that that our business isn't finished. We still have a lot of unfinished business. How do you feel now in twenty twenty two about where things are at, and are you are you sensing a need to once again warn women and and men, our community, to not be complacent? Well, I mean, in a sense, that my my most recent publication, the choice, violence or poverty is such a warning. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to tell people we've got to think about violence differently now. We've got to associate, we have to understand that more than half the women who leave violent relationships end up living in poverty, often in dire poverty, and, uh, and, and they are single mothers. By definition, if you have kids and you leave a relationship, you are a single mother. And our society has been very, very tough on single mothers, very unjust and unfair in their attitudes toward them and in the way in which they're, they're paid by the state is, is just absolutely just disgusting. So that's now that's one sense in which I'm trying to change thinking and say we've got a, a we, we, we can't say to women your choice is you know stay with in a violent relationship as 275,000 women currently are because at least you have a roof over your head and you're not disrupting your kids' schooling and all those things or leave and and um, not be able to afford to eat you know three three meals a day or pay hard registration all that stuff. Mm. So that, that's one thing that worries me. Um, I mean, we have gone backwards politically uh, and the, the changing government will arrest some of that, I hope. Um, I mean, you, least, you sound a bit cautious there, will arrest some of that? You, you don't feel like we've just opened a whole new, whole new, or a whole new world has opened up for women? Well, I hope so. I certainly hope so. But, I mean, you have to remember that on the other side of politics, I mean, that, that they have not learnt the lesson of their huge loss, you know, they're still saying, oh, yeah, we could, it would be a good idea to have some women in our party, but we're not going to do anything meaningful to make it happen. So, you know, I mean, that's just one, one you know, stupid example of, of, of the intransigence and resistance to, to, to power sharing uh, in some areas of our society. You, look at, you know, look at business. It's all still run by men, even though there are a lot more women on boards, but there, are much, there aren't very many women, you know, at the top of organisations, though many, many more than there used to be. Uh, so women, you know, are, 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 are represented in more places. I, I really don't think we'll have the same reaction against abortion as has, as has occurred in the United States, but we need to be vigilant. Uh, you know, we've really had our abortion victories very recently uh, and I think we cherish them and I think young women understand the need to be vigilant because they had to fight to make it happen. It wasn't something that, you know, their, their grandmothers won for them. I just think we have to understand that, that Economic discrimination against women. I think the two, two, the two things I think are important for women are money and safety. And they're, they're the two basic things for me at the moment. So women have got to be paid properly. And the fact that we still don't have equal pay after all these years is just, you know, it's beyond a scandal. It's deliberate and it has to stop. And uh, it can, it has to, in my opinion, it should be legislated. Don't leave it to fair work. It's got to be legislated. That's the only way you make it happen. 
and violence. Um, I do hope there'll be a reset in, in policy towards violence under this new government. I'm optimistic that there will be, but, um, you know, the, the old ways of thinking are very hard to change. So it's, it's not something that I think is necessarily going to happen, but I'll be doing everything I can to try and persuade them. So what next for Anne Summers? You, you've just released, as we've discussed, this uh, terrific and, and very substantial report on um, poverty and violence. What next? Well, I'm going to continue this work. I mean, there's, there's, I'm, I'm going to be doing some more research, uh, some of it re- relating to this report. There were things, that unanswered questions that, that, that arose in that report. Uh, we need to know, know a lot more about the employment uh, relationship between employment and violence. We know that uh, around 50% of women who experience violence are not in, in the workforce, and that is lower than the population of women in general. So why is that? What causes that? What can we do about that? It's a huge area of, of, of research that with colleagues, uh, particularly Bruce Chapman from the ANU, uh, we'll be working on. Uh, there's also health outcomes that need to be documented in the way that I've documented the physical and emotional violence against women in this report. Um, there are you know, tremendously horrible problems of health that are ongoing, particularly uh, mental health, PST, PTSD, uh, and other forms of trauma, which we, you know we recognise but don't do anything about. I also have some ideas for how we could improve things in the women's shelter sector, mm-hmm. uh, improve their funding, and improve uh, their their conditions. I mean, it's just things haven't changed enough. Since the seventies, when we started Elsie, um, these women work like crazy hours. They work under tremendous stress. It's a very, very hard job. You know, so many refugees are having to turn away fifty percent of the women who want to come in every night. We've got, to, you know, I, I, want, it, I, I find it hard to believe that it's now forty-eight years since we opened Elsie. Mm. The fact that we are still having this huge—I mean, if, if someone had said to me back then in nineteen seventy-four. Well, you're going to be, you know, trying to raise billions of money, billions of dollars for, for women's shoulders. 50, 50 years later. Yes, on, I would have just, I wouldn't have believed it. I just wouldn't yeah, have believed yeah. it. I did think that by doing what we did, we were going to change things. I can see there's absolutely no stopping you whatsoever, and there never will be any any um, stop to the work you do. That's pretty obvious. Um, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there, but I, 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 can't thank you enough. Thank you for giving us the time to talk today and thank you for being part of the Change Makers series and the exhibition. And um, what a what an utterly, incredibly inspiring role model you are for all of us. And I, I have no right to say this on behalf of women, but I, I thank you. I, I mean, I've as I say, I've always been in awe of your work, uh, your ethic and your determination and your courage and lack of fear. And um, it is incredibly inspiring so thank you thank you so much thank and thank you, you for being thank with you. us and i'm looking forward to the exhibition i'm sorry i wasn't able to get there for the opening but i'm glad to hear that it's going to be on for a while so i'll definitely get there plenty of time i'd love to take you around it and to all of you who've stayed with us uh, for this fascinating discussion with the amazing dr ann summers um thank you and as i said please do get in touch with us at hello at broadtalk.net or our various social media channels. We're on all of them. You can find us everywhere, and it's so lovely to hear from you. So until our next uh, our next series, uh, our next episode, I should say, you all know what to do. Keep talking.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.